working our way, continuing through Amos. Uh, I deliberately stopped at verse 3 this morning because I wanted to kind of categorize off the nations, uh, even though Amos uses the very same language in regards to Judah uh, and even Israel later on. As he said in the very beginning of the letter, uh, his target audience is really Israel. Uh, even though he's uh, speaking very strongly in regards to the to the the justice of God in bringing punishment to the nations. Uh, the nations were not, at least in that context, privy to that information. He's saying that to the Israelites. So there's a very, there's a very distinct purpose for him doing that. Had he been warning the nations, he would have gone to the nations. Uh, but he's going to Israel and he's prophesying in regards to the nations surrounding Israel, I think more as a, as a way of highlighting or preparing Israel for the place that he was bringing them. Uh, this is a prophecy in regards to Israel. But as I said this morning, I stopped in chapter two, verse three, but I wanna read uh, through the rest of that chapter. We may get over into chapter, thir uh, chapter three at some point as well. But let's begin reading in verse, uh, I'll just start in chapter two, verse one. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime, so I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kirioth, and Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all of her princes with him, says the Lord. So he concludes with the nations, but now he moves to Judah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So I just pause there to say the exact same language that he just used with the nations. The exact same language. And he does so for Israel later here. But he says, I will not revoke their punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes their lies have also led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite, I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars and he was as strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your son young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down with, and filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift and the stalwart and will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasped the bow will not stand his ground and the swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who ride the horse, rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked 
in that day, declares the Lord. I'll stop there, but he moves in more further in speaking in regards to all the tribes of Israel here. And he may even have in mind even Judah to some degree. But he begins, he really closes the noose as it were. He's been speaking about the nations and some commentators believe that uh, Israel would have been saying, amen, that's right, that's right. The nations have done horrible things and they are right for your judgment. But if you read the history and even in the biblical history, they were, uh, Israel had an entanglement with a lot of these nations, sometimes alliances with them. Sometimes they would go down to Egypt. Sometimes they would go to Syria. They had these alliances. So they were entangled with them to some degree. So, so the pronouncement of God's judgment and his uh, not revoking their punishment should have sent some sort of alarm into the Israelites but now he gets even closer to home. In verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke their punishment. As I was sharing this morning, uh, Judah, it seems, had filled up the measure of their sins. And what's striking to me about the change here is that when he's condemning these other nations, it's always for violence, as it were, or the exploitation of human life, bringing it down to this devaluing of life. And they were brutal. They sold people into slavery. They killed. They uh, says they ripped open the wombs of pregnant women. They were violently exploiting, as it were, or devaluing or degrading life. But when he gets to Judah here, he says the reason he gives here for the revoking, not revoking of their punishment is that, number one, they had rejected the law of the Lord. So if you think about that for a minute, if that's on the, if, if he's using the exact same language for three and for four, the filling up of the measure of their sins, God will not revoke their punishment. And then he talks about all the reasons for the other ones being their violence against humanity and their inhumanity to man. Then he gets to Judah and he says on an equal basis, he says their great sin is that they rejected the law of God. So there's, a, there's an equity being demonstrated there that in the rejection of the word of God is as worthy of, of revoking your punishment as is the dehumanizing of humanity. It's on the same, it's at least on the same par or the language suggests that he's viewing that in the same way. And so that's their, that's their great sin. That's the sin for which they had filled up the measure and now God was revoking their punishment. I thought a lot about that this week of how rejecting the law of God, you might say it in our day, rejecting the word of God, a nation that closes this word and not only closes the word, but I think that accompanies that idea of rejecting the word of God is the absence of the fear of God. So you take away this reverence for God and remove his word as, a, as the foundation of the moral compass, it will not be long until you descend into the very place that these nations had descended. We'll be doing the same thing. In fact, you can almost measure it. The less we think of God, the less we revere God, the less we revere life itself, even our own lives. I've been fascinated uh, for a number of years of, of how we have this generation that are adventure seekers and even to the point of putting their lives on the line. And I've even heard some of them in interviews say that they, I just, I just, it makes me feel alive when I do that. So they put their necks out on things. I was reading a story about a kayaker who did the Niagara River. 
Uh, and it was, it was ferocious. I mean, this river would pitch you up sometimes in 20-foot swells in this river. Well, he disappeared in the river, the greatest run he ever had. He, he planned it for years and years and years, and he knew that the likelihood of him not surviving was extremely high. But, but even if I don't survive, while I'm there, I can be alive. Well, that to me is a product of, a, of someone who's brought up in a generation who has devalued life and, and made it minimal or minimized the blessing of life to the point that this man feels dead inside. I know a young man. I noticed not long ago a young man, not, not more than 17 years old, and had a short sleeve shirt on, and I noticed his arms were just carved all to pieces, all to pieces. And I learned later on that he went through a phase when he was younger that he was cutting himself. And one of the reasons given for that was that when I cut myself, I, I feel all of a sudden. I, I cut into my flesh and I can feel that. And I, it reaffirms that I'm alive and I have worth. And so they keep doing that because they feel so dead inside. Why? Because they live in a culture where this life is devalued. But I'm saying to you that in Judah, they had, they had embarked now upon the very foundations of that sort of devaluing of life. That is the disregard for the word of God and a disregard for God or a lack of fear of God. That's the area that they were moving into. And Amos seems to be saying here in this moment, that their, revoke, their punishment had not been revoked because they had rejected the law of God. Sort of parallel to that is the next phrase, and have not kept his statutes. So not only had they rejected the word of God as not worthy or not authoritative to dictate or to guide life, they refused to obey the statutes listed out in the word of God. So now not only have they rejected their moral compass and reverence for God, but they had abandoned now even the acting according to those principles in many ways. Israel, uh, Israel was even worse than this, by the way. Historically, Judah was probably the, the more righteous of the two kingdoms divided. All the most of the wicked kings were in the north and a lot of the idolatry was there, but Judah was not that far behind. But even in Judah... They were set out on the path of this as well. They had not kept his statutes. It's interesting as well, but they did some other things here as well. I, I wrote it this way in my, in my notes. They had, they had not kept the statutes, but they had uh, perpetrated the lies after which their fathers walked. He says here in, in the second phrase, they have not kept his statutes, but their lies also have led them astray. Those, speaking of the lies, after which their fathers walked. So the fathers of these current, uh, this, these contemporary Judeans here, or these contemporary uh, Israelites, or Judeans in this case, ha had embraced the lies by which their fathers had walked, primarily in the, ide ide in the area of ideologies and idols. So they had embraced the very same lies their fathers had embraced. So they had perpetuated the lies that caused their fathers to go astray. And I think about that, that every generation has a responsibility to establish what is true. And so if you've rejected the word of God and you're not keeping the statues of God, you no longer have any basis or any, any instrument by which to discern the truth of even your father. So what do they do? They just repeat the errors and the sin of their fathers. They believe the same lies. And how many generations after generations buy into the lies of their fathers? It's amazing to me, especially in America, because the Bibles are everywhere. 
Bibles were everywhere. I grew up in a family, and I believe my mother tried to raise us in the best way that she could. But I, looking back and by comparing that with the Scriptures, my mom embraced some things that were not born out in Scripture. They were not, they were not true. And I've had to learn that though they are nostalgic and though there are traditions in our family, they have no warrant in truth. And so I've had to set aside those things. Those are not shaping the way I view the world and the way I view other people. Every generation has to evaluate the beliefs that are handed to it by the word of God. But these people got rid of that. They don't want that around. They may have kept it around in some formal, symbolic way, but it was not shaping their beliefs and their behavior and their attitudes. They had set it aside, ceased to keep its statutes, and as a result, they embraced the lies of their father, and by those same lies that led their fathers astray, they were led astray. For this reason, God says, you have filled up the measure of your sin, and your judgment will not be revoked. Really incredible. He even goes so far here to say, verse 5, which is very similar to the nations, so I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. We know that would certainly come later on in the life of Judah. 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians would destroy there and, and take them into captivity as well. Uh, it happened even later, even in 70 A.D., if you will. Uh, in 70 A.D., it happened again, as it were. So we know that was going to be fulfilled, but this is the seriousness of which Amos uh, really ascribes to the setting aside of the Word of God. So now Israel's here. Israel haven't been spoken to directly yet. The nations all around them surrounding them, he has strongly condemned, indicated that their judgment was upon them. Now he's gotten really close to them, their own brothers, as it were, in Judah. Now they are under the pending judgment of God as well for laying aside the law of God, refusing to obey and going astray. So now finally, having set the stage, he gets into verse 6 with his confrontation of Israel and the rest of the book primarily is him speaking of Israel's sins, of God's great mercies, of God's calling them back and their refusal to return, uh, all the, how, how they were indicting themselves by their response to God's calling and, God's, and from God, to God's prophets as well. So he says this, and this is horrible as you think about this, but he says, thus says the Lord now, he's pulled the noose tight, and he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Very same language. Very same language. Uh, I think Israel would have had to understand that whatever he's been saying of the nations and whatever he said of our neighbors to the south, Judah, he's using the exact same language and he's addressing us. <clears throat> so this is not going to be good. <laughs> This is, not, this is not going to be that different from what, what he's pronounced upon the nations and upon Judah itself. So here we go. Because, here's the cause of their, not, their punishment not being revoked. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. And so, like I said this morning, you can devalue a human life by raising it to the ground with a threshing machine of iron. You can devalue a human life by murdering a pregnant woman. And you can devalue a human life by denying righteousness or denying justice to the, to the innocent or to the righteous. That's what he means here. You're selling the righteous for silver. For profit, 
You are putting aside or subjecting the innocent to injustice and culture because you want money. You want wealth. You notice here that he starts out that you're selling the righteous for silver and then a parallel statement and the poor for a pair of sandals. Do you see the progression or the declination there? There was a time when you would sell the righteous for silver. It took a little bit, but for enough silver, you would deny the righteous man justice in the, in the court of, of law or at the gate. You would sell him down the road. If the man who had sinned against the righteous man had more money and he offered you enough silver, you would compromise your integrity and you would sell the righteous man away and you'd go to bed at night maybe feeling bad because the innocent had been persecuted as guilty, but you would have money in your bank account. There was a time when you would do that for enough money. But there's a, there's a point at which you started and then there's a point at the other end of that where now you sell him for a pair of sandals. You compromise your integrity long ago. You begin to take big money bribes for big issues and for the unrighteous and you were willing to sell an innocent man down the road if the unrighteous would pay you enough money and you were allying yourself with the unrighteous in culture and you became corrupt and you became so corrupt that over a period of time you stop even demanding silver. Now a simple pair of sandals is all it takes. You'll sell the innocent down the road all day long. For this reason, your punishment is not revoked. And I couldn't help but think again in our culture today. I, I remember I sat on a jury one time. In fact, sat on two juries. I never heard of anybody getting called for two juries. But we sat on one. They settled. They called me back, interviewed again, and put me on a second jury. But I remember I told Hope when I came home with those two cases, when I came home for her, I said, God forbid that I ever have to sit under the scrutiny of my peers because I have zero confidence that anyone will act justly. Number one, they don't understand justice and righteousness. Number two, they're inconvenienced by the whole mess. I just want to go back home. I don't want to be here. Let's make a decision. Let's get this out of the way and let's get out of here. Anybody ever seen the old movie, 12 Angry Men? Uh, to me, that's classic. That's classic. Because you have people, you almost seen every one of those represented in the, in the jury that I sat upon. And I was scratching my head. I'd already made up my mind. I'm not, I'm not making a decision in haste and doing an injustice as a juror. I have a responsibility. But here's a nation. Here's a culture that has gotten used to selling its integrity. And now there is no justice in the land. That's a serious that's a serious corruption and a serious affront to a righteous and holy God who has a special place as it were for the poor and the helpless and the needy. These people were being sold out. If you came to court for justice and to render have a right decision rendered they for the right kind of money they would sell you down the road. Can you imagine going into a courtroom Knowing that if you didn't have the money to equal the money that the, your, your complainer or your, uh, your accuser could reach, that you would surely be convicted? You're going to prison. You're not, you're, you don't have the money to pay the high-dollar lawyers. 
You don't have the money to pay the, the top DAs. You don't have the money to make the connections and get inside and have this thing minimize and reduce and get you off the hook. You don't have that money. So you're the, you're the, you're the, you may be the guilty, but you're also the helpless and the needy there. And you don't have the resources. You can't compete in that world where money greases the skids. That's exactly how Israel had become. Notice as well, verse 7 it's kind of confusing to read this, but I think what he means here is these. He's talking about these who sell the righteous and the needy for a pair of sandals and the righteous for money. But verse 7, these, that's talking about those same persons, they pant after the very dust of the ground. Can you believe that? I mean, that is such an indictment. They lust after everything. They want silver and gold and money and they'll even sell the righteous for sandals and their whole life is consumed with lust. They lust after the very dust of the ground and they do it upon the heads of the helpless. Disregard for life. How is this any different in regards to valuing human life as those who are doing that in the nations of Philistia and Edom and Ammon and Moab and all these other nations mentioned? How is this devaluing of life any different? Do you say, well, we're not killing them. Congratulations. Congratulations. You value them no more highly. And if that trajectory continues at a certain point when they become non-profitable at all and even causing you an expense, then you will gladly be doing away with those lives as well. So you're on the same trajectory, Israel. You sell them for nothing. And those who pan after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, also these same people also turn aside the way of the humble. Every man, you know, almost, I thought about this, but it's almost, it's almost a provocation for every man to become as evil as they are. Because if you're in Rome, do as they do in Rome. We have that mentality. You do me this way, then I need to be on guard. And the main name is I need to get you before you get me. And so you have this tension now developing in society and in culture where even the way of the humble is turned aside. There is no one with integrity. Everybody's trying to get the upper hand on everybody else and nobody can be trusted. We do not want to live in a world like that. And if you don't believe it, look around because that's more and more the kind of world we're living in. Who do you trust? Do you trust any politicians? Do you, do you trust a lawyer? It's kind of hard to trust a lawyer. I remember somebody used to give a, uh, tell a joke and said, uh, he said, lawyers get a bad rap. They're actually pretty good people real deep down. And they were speaking of six feet deep down. So there's this attitude about lawyers are on the take as well, and they charge these outrageous prices. I'm not putting all those in the same group, but I'm saying there's a general consensus growing in regards to those and those and those withholding those levers of power that they can't be trusted anymore. And it's a dangerous place to be when common people can't have any assurance that they'll find justice when they go into the courts where those decisions are rendered. That's exactly the situation that had developed in Israel, large part because they had done exactly what Judah done. They had rejected the word of God and rejected the fear of God. Notice as well in verse seven, to add to this, he mentions here a man and his father resort to the same girl. You have to read all these in the context down to verse 8 as well. In order to profane my holy name on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
The imagery here, I believe, is, is, is in regards to temple prostitution and to their false gods. The father and son going into the temple prostitute to the same, the same prostitute. And that's tied in with the idea that they lay down on garments that were kept as pledges. In other words, somebody that owed them something gave them a garment as pledge. They said, I'll pay you, I promise. And even in the Old Testament, they were not allowed to keep a pledge overnight lest the person who makes the pledge suffer in some way and cry out to God and then God would hold you guilty. So if somebody gave you a pledge, you would keep it all day and if they didn't pay you that day, you'd give them their pledge back that night. And then the next day, they'd bring you the pledge back and you'd keep it all day, but you didn't keep it overnight. Here, they are lying down on garments that were pledged overnight. And not only were they lying down, they were lying down in a prostitution, a human trafficking operation built upon a false religion, father and son sharing the same thing. Father and son involved in this generational. In fact, he says there in verse 7, in order to profane my holy name. That's the essence of what's happening here. It is profaning the name of God. In fact, he says they stretch out on these garments beside, the, where do they do it? Beside the altar, the place of sacrifice. So this is all an affront to God. And he says, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Where do they get the wine to, to have all this luxury and all this, all, this, all this splendor and this idolatrous practice? Where do they get the wine to drink? They find somebody. We need a little extra wine in the house. Let's bump the fine up a little bit. Somebody might say, well, that's not the normal fine. We're in charge. We're in charge. We say the fine should be more for him. There are mitigating or aggravating circumstances involved in his crime. He needs to give a little more wine. Why? Because we need more wine when we gather to profane the name of God. This is how corrupt Israel had become. Now he goes farther and talks about a lot of other things, but this is the, this is the root cause in which he's saying to them, this is why, Israel, your punishment is being, not being revoked. You have filled up the measure of your sins. This is, think about this for a minute. This is the people of God here. This is not the heathen nations. These are the chosen people of God. In fact, he establishes that. In fact, I think in verse 9, it's in reference to this God that's mentioned in verse 8. And them profaning his holy name. He says, they, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. But then in verse 9, he says, yet it was I. It was this God, the one roaring from Israel, from Jerusalem, the God of Amos here. I, it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them. It wasn't these false gods of yours that you're worshiping and human trafficking and devaluing the life of the lady involved in the prostitution, devaluing your own life, devaluing the life of those whom you kept the pledge of the garments, devaluing those whom you find in exorbitant rates so that you might have the wine to drink. You've made all of those individuals objects of your own manipulation so that you might somehow profit and prosper and be comfortable yourselves. You have devalued this human life and then you have the nerve to offer up drink offerings to this God and you act as though this God has done anything for you I'm the God who delivered you that's what he's saying 
That God had no power at all against the Amorites or any other nation for that matter. He was a false God. You had to carry him around rather than him carry you. He is no God at all. But yet you, you sin against my holy name by acting in this way in this regards. And perhaps somehow they even thought that some way they were doing God a service in all of this. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. He goes on to speak of this, though his height, speaking of the strength of the Amorite, was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the yokes. He was a mighty, he was a mighty opponent, a mighty enemy of yours. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up, he says, out of the land of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up not only that, in other words, I brought you to this place and in the land that you dwell. I'm responsible for that. I carried you along the way. And all the while, verse 11, then having done all that, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your sons, young men to be Nazarites. The Nazarites involved in taking an oath to God. And, and they, you remember, they wouldn't bring a razor to their head, would not drink wine. Samson had a Nazarite vow, you remember. And so God says, I raised up this kind of men among you. But what does he say in verse 12? Here's some more of their sins. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. You basically compelled them or provoked them to violate their devotion to God or their oath to God. You, you perverted the Nazarites. Not only that, but then you go to the prophets and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. I gave you them, you tell them not to prophesy. I gave you Nazarites and you tell them, don't worry about your vow to God. You've done everything you can to undermine God and in so doing have done the greatest disservice to human life which is created in the image of the very God who delivered you out of Egypt. And yet you profane his holy name? I mean, I cannot believe the, the disregard for life. The trafficking involved here. It seems as though Israel, like the other nations, other, listen to this please, other human beings exist for me to arrange and to manipulate and to move according to what serves my own best interest. And you may say, that's horrible. Trafficking's horrible. Drug addiction and drug dealing is horrible. All these things are exploiting human lives. But be warned now that even the, even the one who doesn't get involved in those things can have a view of other people, that they arrange people in their lives and around their lives to their own advantage at the disregard of the good of that other person. Do you know when you do that, you are disregarding life. You are devaluing life. Let me just say this, you don't exist for my pleasure to move you around in ways that are pleasing to me. You are individually created in the image of God and are therefore worthy of dignity and respect as such and should be treated accordingly. But what do we see in our world? Even among those who call themselves religion, we see a manipulating and trafficking, trafficking as it were, in human emotions, building up followings for themselves, getting rich off of the manipulation of other human beings. That is the devaluing, that is a huge devaluing of life. And I think it's as much an affront to God as taking a life physically. 
Because you have essentially made the same calculation. You have made that this life created in the image of God is not equal to the worth of my own. Therefore, it is subject to me to use as I see fit to enhance my own. I can't. That's all. That's idolatrous. I mean, that's idolatrous. That's almost blasphemous. Husbands and wives even. Our wives don't exist uh, just merely for our, for our pleasure to be manipulated in any way that's pleasing to us. And wives, your husbands don't exist for that reason either. We are both created in the image of God. And there is a certain amount of dignity and respect due each one on the basis of that. And to, and to treat them in any other way is to devalue that life. This is what Israel had made a practice of. And I hate it. It's sad when he says in verse 13... In regards to their behavior, verse 13, Behold, I am weighted down beneath you. As a wagon is weighted down, filled with sheaves. I am just, I am just weighted with the burden of it all. You're not only one person doing this, this has become the norm. This is the cultural expectations in Israel. Everyone expects to not get justice in the court. So therefore, they endure injustice and never bring it to court because it would just intensify their sorrow. So they are just subject to be abused. And the ones who abuse know that. And so they abuse them even more. And you just keep pushing down the innocent and the righteous and those who are trying to make a living. And you keep crushing them down that way. And it's all over Israel it's that way. Add to that the idolatry and the sexual perversion and the devaluing of life in regards to the practice of these things. You are weighting me down. You are heavy upon my back or my shoulder. So he gives an a, a anthropomorphism here, a, a demonstration a manly or a humanly way of speaking here that they are a weight and they become a burden, as it were, to the Lord. Can you imagine the Lord saying that about a nation today? I mean, with all your heart, just take a real good look across this nation and see what's being proposed and uh, one day after another. I mean, it's, it's not even surprising to me anymore to get up in the morning and watch the news and see what the latest proposal coming across the line is. I mean, there's one school board I heard this past week, I think up, up north somewhere, but they were, they were going to court to protect the school's right not to tell the parents if the child was demonstrating or expressing some desire to transition sexually at school. So the parents are cut out of the conversation. And they played all these clips where the politicians are saying, they're, they're our children, they're our children. No, they're our children. They're my children. If, I, if they're born to me, they're my children. They're not your children, government and on and on and on you see these policies. And they're always the maneuvering and the jockeying around of humanity to provide for the greatest value to those with the power to do that. And you know what happens to us out here? We figure out at some point that you can't win in that system. And so we don't even engage the system. We endure abuse. We get cheated. We, don't, we know we can't get justice, so we just endure it and we build our head down. That's what I mentioned, that song that guy put out this morning. That's what you hear in him, frustration. There's no abuse pushing back because the whole system is stacked against us. So we go back home and we just hope you'll leave us alone. But now you won't even do that. Now you're coming for us. 
And we're, we've had it up to here. That's the oppression that was happening to the common people, I think, in Israel. Under the power of the elite and particularly the religious elite because he goes later on and they were in on the, in on the game as well. The whole nation had become corrupt. And God says, you filled up the measure of your sin. I'm not withholding the punishment anymore. If there's ever been a warning for America, whether it's Judah in the setting aside of the word of God, we started doing that a long time ago. Get it out of the schools. Let's don't pray. Let's try to shut the kids off from the word of God. And more and more families are rejecting that as well. And so we push the word of God out and along without a reverence for God. And with the absence of those two things, we became, just, we became on this downward trajectory. And now we're reaping the fruits of that trajectory. And the faithful in the remnant of the faithful still living in this country today look around and we're, we're grieved. And we ask ourselves, how did it get here? How did it get here so fast? Well, be careful because before we point the finger outwardly at all the other organizations, how did you, we were talking to some guys this morning after the service, how have you contributed to it getting there? Have you not, have you read your Bible? Have you studied your Bible? Have you been faithfully gathering with the body of Christ, worshiping together? Have you been growing in your love for one another? Have you been suffering alongside of those who suffer? Have you been vocal and engaged in culture as you see it moving away? Or have we been like so many and just say, go home and say, look, just don't come on my property. You do whatever you want to live and let live, but just leave me alone. We've took that attitude in America, and perhaps that's rooted in our spirit of independence. I don't know, but I can tell you this. Homosexuality matters to me, even, even, if, I, even if I don't know anybody that is homosexual. The, a Supreme Court ruling that says there is a right for homosexuality to be expressed in the marriage covenant, even if, even if I don't know anybody that's married in the homosexuality, it has an effect on me because it's undermining and undergirding moral righteousness. And that's going to filter down to me somehow along the way. I mean, that was a, that's not even a big deal anymore, Right? The Ober, Oberfeld decision or whatever it was called, that's not even on the, on the, on the horizon anymore. Now it's transgender stuff and even, even pedophilia and all, all sorts of perversions. Now we're discussing those things and people are even scratching their head. Well, I don't know that it's wrong. We, we're losing our way. This, this nation is losing its way. And when I read the judgment of God against the nations and even of Israel, and even as he describes how he has reached out to them and brought difficulties into their lives to get their attention, and yet they would not return to him. How long has that been going on in America? I mean, I personally don't take coincidental as coincidental 9-11 and the events of 9-11. I don't take that as coincidental at all. I don't think that is a mere failure in security. Those may all have been the instruments that produced that, but to me that was a wake-up call. I don't take it, it as insignificant and coincidental of tsunamis taking out 250,000 souls. I don't take as insignificant the fires in Maui today. I don't, I don't take as insignificant those things because there is a God who is master over those things. And it may be that God is doing the same thing that he's going to talk about in Israel's life through these events. And yet we would not turn to him. And for that reason, he prophesies of Israel 
your punishment will not be revoked. You have filled up. For three and for four, you have filled up the measure of your sins. You have filled the container of God's patience, and now it is overflown, overflowed from that, and there is no alternative for you now but God's strong and severe hand. That's what's coming against Israel. He's pronounced it. What's striking to me is having pronounced it against the nations and even against Judah, which technically speaking was probably not as far declined as Israel was at this point. If God's going to judge Judah, who's not quite as bad as we are, boy, we are really ripe for judgment up here because Judah wasn't great by no means, but most of the faithful kings were in the southern kingdom while almost all the northern kings moved off into idolatry and wrong alliances through the years. There's a stern warning for our nation and I think for the world even today uh, through these. Uh, coming back to that story this morning, uh, when that young man read from Psalm 37, uh, his voice began to break near the end of that. And I could tell that by the way he was reading, he seemed to have, he seemed to have been moved by the promise underneath that, not so much that God would would turn the wicked's bow upon himself, but he seemed to be moved most in that, that, that God would sustain the righteous. That the end of this is that the righteous and those who follow Christ will be delivered out from under this oppression fully and finally and eternally someday. And maybe, maybe temporally, even as we pray and fall upon our knees. Uh, God did relent in the destruction of Nineveh, at least the first time. And so maybe, maybe the call needs to go out first and foremost in our own nation. Maybe I should say first and foremost in the church. If judgment begins, let it begin at the house of God. Maybe the church needs to repent. Maybe the church needs to call itself back to its foundations and get back to its true head as Christ. One of the indictments of the new revelation churches there was that they had left their first love. They did a lot of things right, had a lot of ministry going on, but they, they were missing something. They they'd moved away from their first love. Maybe the church has gotten away from its love for Christ. Maybe we just got busy doing ministry and doing charitable good deeds and works throughout the world. And maybe we got consumed with the world giving us a good reputation for helping folks out. It's amazing to me how many people come by the church and they almost expect the church was going to help them. Well, that's because of tradition and centuries and decades of the church just practically doing that. They built a reputation of being available for help. But the same people seem like they won't come here when their life is destroyed and they're looking for hope because we hadn't set a tradition of offering the gospel in a very clear and powerful way. So maybe, maybe the church, including us, ought to repent from the way we've done church. Maybe we ought to come back to the foundations of what Christ has called us to be and be the church in full and be the church that honors and glorifies God. And then maybe we can have impact in our world and maybe through that instrument of God's church coming back to himself, maybe God would be merciful and send revival through that instrument to a nation. I would love for my grandkids to grow up in an America that was grounded upon something that wasn't moving like sand something sure and something rock solid, such as the truth of God's word, that there is a greater God, there is a greater sovereign in the universe than the president of the United States to whom all men must give account someday. I want my children and grandchildren to grow up with that realization, not that they have to become corrupt to live in a corrupt world. And I pray that'll be your prayer as well. Stand with me tonight.
I mentioned someone, these books, these minor prophets may seem to be repetitive to you. Uh, if, if you think they are, go home and study very intently and you'll see some nuances in each one and each, each one of those minor prophets brings a, another aspect to bear in regards to just how, just how wayward uh, humanity can get when it pursues its own ends apart from God's. And I pray that God will teach us that. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray for our nation. I pray particularly for our leaders and those in positions of power and influence. Lord, if there's ever been a nation that where the righteous were sold for silver, it's here. Lord, we see people uh, spend their life savings trying to defend themselves from false accusations. And even if they prevail in the court of law, they've been ruined in the court of public opinion. They, all their resources have been drained and they've been stigmatized. And Father, sometimes I believe that's the design just to silence them through that. And Father, we live in a generation as well where, where the, uh, the righteous are being sold. Father, we can go into courts and not be assured at all that there'll be a right judgment rendered. We're almost more inclined to find out the political affiliation of the judge than we are whether or not we've been consistent with the Constitution or consistent with our laws. And so Father, we know firsthand what it feels like to live in a culture where justice could not be trusted. But Lord, I pray that we would understand the answer is not a new judge, the answer is not a new attorney, the answer is not a new politician, the answer is a return to you. And Father, for our judges and our politicians and our lawyers and even we ourselves cannot discern what is true and what is right and what is reasonable apart from the truth of your word. So we pray for a revival of your word in the hearts of your church first and foremost and through your church into our community as well. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Pray that you would be with each of us throughout this week, that we would be near to us in our thoughts and in our hearts. Lord, that we would understand and see our lives as devoted to you in all things, whether that be a mom cooking a meal for her family or a husband going out to earn the bread for the for the resources, the materials of their family. Father, whatever we do, let us do all that we do for your sake and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.